1: Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky to my left, to my right, Aaron Lammer. Is that, sta- is that stage left or, or audience left? I'm just trying. I've been listening to a lot of soccer games on the radio. I'm trying to get more to, of a picture. We're excited
2: of. to announce our uh, live Broadway show.
1: <laughs> Don't make jokes <laughs> about live radio <laughs> shows. That's a uh, pe- People be doing those. Uh, Who did you talk to this week, Evan? I talked to uh, John Heilman who is uh, an old friend of mine. Uh, I fact-checked his work when I worked at Wired a long time ago, uh, and a book of his, and he has since gone on to write some books uh, that uh, you may have heard of, like Game Change, uh, which then got turned into a movie. Heard of that one, Game Change? Double Down. What is the Game Change movie like? Pretty good, I saw it, It it's an HBO HBO movie. Who who plays who? Uh, Julianne Moore plays Sarah Palin. That's Spot on. Yeah, she, she kills it. It's about right. And that's I think Ed on. Harris plays John McCain, is that right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. It's pretty good stuff. I meant to ask Highland about, uh, he appears in it as like a extra in some scene, but I forgot to ask him about it, so. Max, do we have any sponsors this week? We have one sponsor, but it's our favorite sponsor. Tiny Letter? That's the one. It's a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. It's from the people at MailChimp. Um, Tiny letters are all over the place. David Carr had a column about tiny letters. Uh, you're missing out if you're not if you're not either uh, reading or writing a tiny letter, I'd say. It's true. You guys going to start tiny letters? Maybe I already have one. You got nothing to say. <laughs> you got a secret tiny letter? <laughs> well, or do I? Uh, here is Evan and John Heileman. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
2: Welcome to the podcast, John Halman, Evan Ratliff. Yeah, happy to be here.
1: I would say we've known each other for a while now, for some years. Uh, I'm I'm ver- I'm certain that we met in the summer of 2000. Summer of 2000. So that's yeah. when you were. That's when you were working on uh, the Microsoft article and then book. The, and uh,
2: in San Francisco, California.
1: But here's here's where I wanted to start because okay. normally I don't I don't we don't start with like a just a, chrono- a chronological approach. But I feel like people see on TV they know Game Change like. They see a New York Magazine, and they might find it hard to envision the, like, John Heilman who's, like, the young guy at a magazine who's, like, I don't know, getting people coffee or whatever. I don't have any idea how you started. I know you started at The Economist.
2: Yeah, I was never that guy, getting people coffee, luckily. Yes. I mean, I, I say with, I say, but, you know, but not with not a sense of, of, of uh, arrogance, but just a sense of luck. Where did you come from? where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles, California, um, mm-hmm. in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, in a town called Canoga Park that still exists although at some point after I left in the mid-1980s they as urban planners or want to do, they chopped Canoga Park in half and they left the part that was filled with porn uh, studios and and Hispanics and called it Canoga Park and and took the part that was filled with white people and called it West Hills, oh, um, which, which raised the property values for people like my father, who was an aerospace engineer and like a totally middle class guy, but like his house suddenly went from being worth $200,000 to worth $350,000. And it was like, wow, just because they changed the name of the neighborhood and Uh excluded all the like undesirables. So yeah, so I grew up in this totally suburban um, it's in, totally in the heart of suburban California. So Did you California. have
1: literary asp- aspirations as a? Pretty as much a, always. Kid? Pretty much always. Yeah, uh,
2: I went to Catholic high school. And I had a really, really uh, a number of really inspirational English teachers in high school, and one of whom gave us a, a, an assignment to write an essay about about poetry, and was broad minded enough to let me write an, assist, write an essay about uh, about Paul Simon and Bob Dylan. And I remember writing that thing and finishing writing it and being like this is what i want to do huh. not necessarily be a music critic or a poetry critic or whatever but like that like i wrote something that was like the longest thing i'd probably ever written to that point i don't remember how long it was but i remember i remember i have a very vivid memory of finishing it turning it in being proud of it and thinking like writing would be a good thing to do i didn't know what kind of writing i didn't know if it would be journalism or fiction or criticism or whatever but that i thought you know that was great and i had felt a sense of satisfaction doing it that i had never had before and pretty much from that point on i like was figuring out what kind of writing it was going to be not whether i was going to write or not
1: huh. And did you feel? Did you always feel you, in addition to being, it was satisfying as an experience? Did you feel like you had an instant competency at it? That it was something that you excelled at, or it's something that you? Were... It, it
2: came easily to me. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I, in fun, it's funny way. I enjoyed it more then than I do now. In the sense that, like, I'm more tortured by it now huh. than I was then. Um, the more you know about how good it could be, the more you realize that you're falling so, so far short of how of the, how really great writers write. So um, at the time, it came easily to me, and I enjoyed doing it, and I took satisfaction from it. And the people who read the things that I wrote told me that I was good at it, so I believed them. And they were, you know, the most important teachers that I had when I was at that age, through high school at least, were English teachers. And all of them had the sense that I was good at it. Yeah, so I thought about, um, you know, where to go to school, and the one that I had decided I was going to go to no matter what was, was to go to Northwestern because of the journalism program there. And it was the only school in the country that had a journalism program, but also a really good liberal arts college. It was like if you could, if you went to like the University of Missouri to go to the journalism school, like you weren't really going to get a good liberal arts education, but you could go to Northwestern and be in the J school. As you know, an undergrad. Yeah, as an undergrad, yeah. but also do a political science double major and be like, you know, get a really good political science education. And my whole thing was like I wanted to do, I wanted to learn some of the basic journalism stuff but I also really wanted to get like a real actual undergraduate education. Yeah. So it was like, that's why I decided to go there. And it was pretty much the only school I
1: was like, it was like, if I got in there, I was going to go there. Mm -hmm. And I got in there early and just said, okay, I'm going. And then how did you, how did you get into a job that wasn't the sort of, you know, like intern opening the mail or, or whatever job, like, how did you go from there to?
2: In my senior year, I was thinking about going to grad school. And I had a bunch of interesting job offers, including a job offer at, variety and a job offer at Rolling Stone and a couple like, I mean, there were like internee jobs, like, you know, not like real jobs that were like, you know, just like there would have been mailroom, you know, pouring people coffee jobs. And I also had this girlfriend who, um, who I was really into and she decided she was going to move to Washington and, um, work on Capitol Hill. I'd applied to a bunch of different kinds of graduate schools, some in journalism, some in politics. And I blew it all off and decided just, I was going to follow this chick to DC. So I went to Washington without any idea what the fuck I was going to do there. Hmm. And ended up working in an office on Capitol Hill and as a bartender in uh, Georgetown at this bar called Garrett's.
1: And um, I, I know Garrett, Garrett's out of business now, right? Yeah. When was the last time I was there? Yeah. 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 Pretty it was recently, great, though.
2: It was a great bar and it lasted for a long time. And, yeah.
1: uh, and I met a lot of great people there.
2: Um, but um, I had all these weird things that happened that year, including um, sharing a beach house that summer, summer of 1987, summer of 1988 with uh, Anthony Weiner. Um, Which is one of the weirder things in my in my background, and you know Anthony was really good friends with John Stewart, so John Stewart and I, like John Stewart, was around all the time in our beach house in in Dewey Beach, Delaware. Um, Again, at the time, that is something. At the time, who knew that these people would turn into (laughs) who they turned into? But that was all a fact. But I knew I was not going to stay on Capitol Hill, and I worked for this incredibly corrupt congressman. I was working as the, for, as the press secretary for the chairman of the House Banking Committee, this guy named Freddie St. Germain from Rhode Island, uh-huh. who probably more than any single legislator in the history of the republic caused the savings and loan crisis in the <laughs> 1980s by deregulating the SNLs. There were a bunch of corrupt congressmen then on the Democratic side, you know, Rostinkowski and Jim Wright, the speaker. Uh-huh. And, and he was in that class of this old kind of perfumed um, kind of like I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't make them up kind of a uh, level of, of corruption and Rhode Island at that time. And also, Rhode, Island, Rhode Island, even now, yeah, you know, it's well, pretty, <laughs> pretty corrupt culture. Um, so I had a kind of amazing experience there, but he was the, cha- he was the chairman of a committee. So, you, you know, you, you it was a, I learned a lot actually mm-hmm. working for him, even though I didn't, I really just took the job because I wanted to be in DC and like my girlfriend worked in Rayburn. And I thought if I get a job in Rayburn, that'd be great. Cause we'd be closer to each other, you know, it was all yeah, driven lunch. all driven by, all driven by a girl. And, um, I thought I'd go back to grad school, and I knew I was going to – but I was very focused on um, doing grad school and then – but using that as a stepping stone to, like, doing a journalism thing. And um, I went to the Kennedy School at Harvard um, to because I thought it would be good to, like, if I was going to write about politics. And I had been kind of wavering between whether I would write about pop culture um, or whether I would write about politics. And there were uh-huh. the two things that really interested me that continue to interest me. And uh, I went to the Kennedy School kind of thinking that I was kind of making my choice and that politics was what I would write about. And so I spent two years there. And the summer between those two years, I was an intern at the Washington Monthly. A lot of good people came out of the Monthly. Which a lot of good people came out of, yeah. Yeah. And um, I wrote for the Monthly. And um, I published a couple pieces there. And, in fact, the first one I published – was the first one that was edited by an incoming the you know the, the monthly used to have these two editors and mm-hmm. you know, they were they were on an alternating schedule you did a two year thing there and you made like twelve thousand dollars a year and then you went on to bigger things and became James Fallows or you know became Taylor Branch or whoever you were going to become but there was this kid coming in who was about to take over at the end of the summer as one of the two and one of the the new editor in the rotation was this kid named James Bennett who now is the editor of the Atlantic the first piece that i published in the in a national magazine was the first piece that james edited in a national magazine hmm. and that sort of kicked off what has to this day remains like an incredibly close friendship
1: and you also didn't you intersect somewhat f- famously with barack obama at when you were at harvard like you shared a smoke with him or something i saw that in some footnotes or something we did yeah
2: well, i mean i mean i i always like really try to clarify on this story because it's funny but it's the truth is not a friend of mine not <laughs> not like a guy i was like i hung out with but Um, We did live like about two blocks from each other in Somerville. He started at the law school in in the fall of 1988, and I started at the Kennedy School in the fall of 1988. And we lived a block and a half away from each other and had to walk the same walk by the Harvard Divinity School to get to where we went to. So he was really good friends with – he was like three degrees of separation away. I knew a lot of law students. I lived with a law student, and I knew all these people who knew him. And so – and he was a big figure on campus. He was like older – you know, uh-huh. like in the law school world, he was older than a lot of the law students who had come right out of college. He was like four or five, six years older. He was this, you know, impressive dude who had clear political aspirations and was in his classes was seen as being a you know, in a very hyper competitive environment. People identified him early as someone who was like a standout at Harvard Law School. And in that environment, you have to be badass to get identified that way. Yeah. Because everyone thinks Everyone's they're like everyone thinks they're or whatever. Right. And everyone yeah. thinks they're the, right, right. the the shit of the shit. Right? Yeah. So you would hear about Barack Obama. And I met him through a mutual friend who introduced me to him on the steps of the Langdale Library one day. And I was smoking cigarettes and standing around. And he came up and introduced this tall, thin, you know, kind of striking African-American guy and said, this is Barack Obama. And I said, you know, hey. Later, it's like, wow, the first words you spoke to a future president. And <laughs> right. he looked at me and said, hey, man, can I bum a smoke? And I said, sure. And I and we still didn't smoke a cigarette. and. Again, I would you know play basketball together a couple times. You know, I played in a poker game with him once. You know, it's like you know, not like we weren't buddies, but yeah. But you again, people kept their eye on him, right? And and I was there. My second year was the year that he was in the competition to become the president of the law review, right? And that right. got national attention, right? And that's that a got written deal. And about in the New York Times, yeah. so,
1: so you people, knew he was kind of yeah, was...
2: yeah. It was it was enough at, entree that it, for, it, it from a journalistic standpoint it's like, oh hey, I know that guy, yeah. You know, like and so he like. Looking for that little shared thing is the thing that can sometimes get you in the door. You yeah. Know, is that little thing of, oh, we were, at, oh, I knew that guy at Harvard vaguely. He knows my friend so and so, my friend so, oh, yeah, hey, well, he got in the car with us and ride with us. You know, so I shamelessly used that connection to my advantage throughout well, his career. I was, <laughs>
1: I was also wondering I mean, you mentioned the Anthony Weiner thing or John Stewart, like, is there some way in which like being around those people who then became very prominent in these different ways made you feel more like a peer to them and less?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely I mean, I don't think this is at all unique to me. If you're Joe Klein and you were, you know, read it in the you were writing in the Boston Phoenix in 1972 or 1974 and you were the same age as John Kerry and John Kerry came home from Vietnam and threw his medals over the wall. You know, you have a different kind of relationship with John Kerry for the rest of your life than you will have with the guys who are ten years older or twenty years older. Right. You know, every generation of political journalists has some class of people. Either they're the first the, the people that they were freshman congressmen when they first started covering Capitol Hill or whatever the thing is, and those people you have a different relationship with than people who you who were, you know, big grandees, you know, that that when you were young. Mm-hmm. So Sometimes it's complicated, you know. As with when something when something goes wildly wrong with someone's life, like Anthony, who you know, like I've known forever, right? You know, it, it's it becomes complicated and weird. And it's not like he's a great friend of mine, but still, I've known him for a long time, you know. Yeah. But I really don't think that's unusual or unique to me. I think it's like it, every generation, you know, you're, you're you look at the people who are your age, you know, in a different way. Just as you look at the ones who are now younger. I mean, I'm 48 now, and so when I see like these young, hotshot congressmen or whatever who are 32. It's a different relationship than if you were ten years younger, and you kind of right. look at them like, "I know more about Capitol Hill than you do." I'm just, I just do, you know, because <laughs> you're 32. And I know what it was like to be 32, and you just got here and you don't know anything, and so it changes the nature of the relationship that you have with them in the same way that you know your age and relative, you know, relationship changes the nature of the of the interplay that you have with people mm-hmm. in politics for sure.
1: So you you went to Kennedy School, and then
2: I got out at the at the fall of 1990, and I had two job offers, one of which was to go work for U.S. News and World Report, which was actually a magazine back in those days. You may remember it. I don't know. Yeah, your, it, was, um,
1: it was It was for a while. It was sort of like Time, Newsweek, U.S. There news. Were th- there
2: were three news magazines yeah. then, and they were all competing, and they offered me a job that was like an actual like reporting job, but like, like the most base-level reporting job you could get offered in Washington, basically on the back of these two pieces I'd written for the Washington Monthly. And then I got this phone call from this guy who was the Washington Bureau Chief of the Economist, who was a guy named Mike Elliott, who went on to be a lot of different things. He now runs the One Campaign for Bono, um, but oh, yeah. he was also the the international editor. He later became the international editor for Newsweek and was the international editor for Time and did a lot of things. And is like a very close friend of mine now. At the time, he was just this British guy on the phone who called up and said that he knew about me from the monthly and, you know, would I like to apply for an internship in his office? And I was like, you know... I have like have a job offer, you know, like and he said, well, you know, come see me like, you know, well, you know, like let's have a chat. I didn't really know that much about The Economist, but um, I met this guy and I liked him. And he said, look, you know, this is an internship, but it's a congressional election year. You'll come here in the summer. You'll spend, you know, the the summer and the fall here. And then, you know, you can eat. You know, this is how The Economist works is that internships are like tryouts and like if you write your way onto the magazine you'll at the end of this you'll have a job offer and that job offer will probably be in London and it'll probably be like here's what it'll be like if you get a job offer here and here's what your life will be like if you stay at US News if you go to US News and I sort of thought that was like a kind of like roll of the dice I was willing to take you know so I went there and I wrote a lot. I mean, it was it was clear that this was an internship in which you were going to be expected to write, mm-hmm. like, and write for the magazine, and mm-hmm. not like it was not going to be like a photocopying, like, for other people, doing research for other people, internship. So I wrote a bunch of pieces, and they liked them. And at the end of it, um, they said, "Hey, come to London, and um, you know a lot about politics." And I said, "Yeah." And they said, "So we want to give you a job writing about business." <laughs> and I didn't know shit about business, like in nothing, zero. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it. And I said, that's sort of fucked up, you know. And um, the guy who was the editor then of The Economist, which was just then emerging from becoming a quirky British magazine that had been around for 150 years, that had a few readers in America who were mostly like librarians, Mm -hmm. to being like this global powerhouse under this one guy named Rupert Pennant Ray, who later became the deputy governor of the Bank of England and then got involved in a... Sex scandal that led to one of the great tabloid headlines ever in British history, called uh, where he, he was screw he had got he got caught screwing his mistress in the Bank of England, and so they ran a headline I believe in the Sun that was called the Bonk of England, which was like one of my favorite things ever. So Rupert, who really was like a character from Monty Python sketch, he was actually from South Africa. He was a genius in some ways, and he was basically had identified that there was a emerging market for. A a, a cosmopolitan business class of readers that The Economist could appeal to. And he was in the process of turning the magazine from what I described before into what it is now, Mm -hmm. which is like this totally global, totally international Appealing to that Cosmopolitan business traveler set. Not like the richest people in the world, actually, but like the kind of people who get on planes a lot and fly everywhere and need to be able to digest information really fast. Again, pre internet, yeah, right? And want to
1: feel smart. The
2: whole magazine had this identity. There were no bylines. And the magazine had this singular voice. And they had stringers over 150 years. They developed this amazing stringer network all over the world. So the best guy in Nairobi who worked for the paper there or the best guy at the Jerusalem Post. Also, dug the idea of writing for The Economist even without a byline. And so they had these incredible writers. Hmm. And then they had all these sub editors in London who would sub everything and make it all sound like it was the same thing. And there was already like a lot of money there. Like it was making money, like hand over fist. It was very profitable. So it was um, a place where Rupert had this attitude with me where he said, look, You know about politics, and probably you'll end up writing about politics in this magazine, but, like, I like the idea of taking smart young generalists and throwing them at things they know nothing about because rather than going in with a bunch of preconceived questions because you already know about the auto industry or the advertising industry, you're going to go in and ask, like, with a fresh set of eyes, you're going to ask a bunch of questions that, like, are off the wall and Mm -hmm. quirky and weird, and you're going to get interesting answers and write interesting articles, and I sort of said, yeah, all right, fine. Like, it wouldn't be a bad thing to learn how to, like, read a P&L and, and, and a balance sheet, which yeah. they'll teach me to do. Yeah. And as it happened, and this probably was the key thing, was that the guy who, was, who is now the editor of The Economist, John Micklethwaite, was just leaving what was, to my mind, the only business beat that I really was interested in that seemed like fun to me, which was the global media business beat. I was going to move to L.A. and become the first Economist Los Angeles correspondent. And at that point in the early 90s, Rupert Murdoch, Robert Maxwell, all of these kind of media titans, you know, Time Warner, the Time Warner merger, the original Time Warner merger, Time and Warner, had just happened, and it was an era of like big media deals and the beginning of discussions of information superhighway and synergy and vertical integration and all this stuff. It's like everything
1: was on the rise before it all went to shit. Right,
2: exactly. But it was like there were big characters and big money and big debt and big deals, and I thought, well, shit, that sounds like that would be kind of fun to do, right? So I took that gig, and um, I spent the next three years doing a thing that, like, every 24-year-old would dream of doing. Like, this is just, again, I've, I've given you the the narrative, right? Blind shithouse luck in a certain ways. So I don't know how it all kind of ended up here. But you had all these, like, 30-year-old reporters who had kids and, like, even though The Economist had all this money and would say to the business writer who covered the chemicals industry, you know, please go travel, you know. Anywhere they you would say, out. I don't really want to travel. I want to stay home with my wife and kids. And I was like – I want to go everywhere. And every time, there was never a constraint. There was never like, stay here and write it cheaper. Hmm. It was like, get on the plane. And with The Economist credentials, you could talk to anybody anywhere. You could go see the head of, of Dentsu, the biggest advertising agency in Japan. Or you could go meet Rupert Murdoch in Hong Kong when he was about to buy Star TV, which was the biggest satellite network in, in Hong Kong. And so I spent three years, like like my life was, I'd fly from London to Hong Kong and from Hong Kong to Tokyo and Tokyo to L.A. And L.A. back to London and then to Paris and then to Rome and then to New York and then to Moscow. And then, to, you know, I just spent three years using the money of The Economist to travel around the world and writing like fucking crazy.
1: Did you think you sort of like reporting chops developed during yeah, that time? Yeah.
2: And I would say, you know, The Economist is a weird thing because it's a very limited palette. They don't do profiles, really. Mm -hmm. What they do really, really, really well, though, is exposition and analysis. Like, how do you take a complicated subject and distill it into a really clear framework that explains what's going on here and applies some kind of an analytical eye to it? If you had the attitude of this is a really great educational opportunity as well as like a fuck of a lot of fun,
1: you know, you could learn a lot. And then you, did you go straight to, I know you had like a dual, like Wired.com and New Yorker gig. (laughs) I did these three years in London, then I went to Washington
2: for The Economist and got back to politics. And I spent a couple years there doing that in 94 and 95. One of the most vivid memories of my life I'll never forget was the day in Paris at a friend of mine's apartment, um, who was a management consultant, um, picking up the first issue of Wired and reading Lewis's Manifesto, mm-hmm. which described this idea for a magazine, which was, this is going to be a magazine, the digital revolution is changing our lives. And it's like a Bengali typhoon. And this is going to be a magazine that's going to be about that, but it's not going to be about technology and products. It's going to be about all of the implications of the digital revolution, about the social, economic, political, cultural, all of that. And I I read it and thought, this. Is a th-. I mean, first of all, I was like, that's a magazine I want to read. Yeah. And second of all, it was like, this is a brilliant guy. Like, this is like, this is like a great magazine idea. This is a magazine idea. Like what it must've been like when Jan thought of like how to do Rolling Stone. And I thought this is the first really original. And I, you had legs, you know, you could see that that was like a story that was going to play for 30 years. Right. And it was really brilliantly conceived. And there was a lot of hyperbole in the manifesto, but you could still see the corn, the kernel of like, this is like, could be big. Yeah. So I got in touch with those guys myself, and I met my friend John Battelle, who was then like one of Lewis's – like one of the original founders there. And so I had started to write for them. I wrote a big piece about the BBC for them in the very – like the second issue or the third issue of Wired. So I had this relationship going on at Wired. And Lewis had this idea because Lewis really did think of himself as the, proje- as the set successor to Rolling Stone. He thought that Jan had created this magazine that was for the rock and roll generation of the 60s and that Wired was this 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 magazine for the digital generation of the early 90s. And he wanted his Hunter Thompson. He'd been in business for a couple of years. And Wired was the hottest magazine in the country. And Lewis was like in 1996, it's going to be the first presidential election where the Web will have existed. And we're going to send somebody out on the trail who's going to write about politics from the perspective of the digital generation. That doesn't mean you're going to write about digital politics, but you're going to be our Hunter Thompson. So we want to hire you to do that. And I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And at the same time, I had started writing these Talk of the Town pieces for The New Yorker. Is it it Tina Brown era New Yorker? Tina Brown era New Yorker. Tina had just come in a couple years earlier. And they came to me and said, you know, we'd, we'd like to have you write every week for Talk of the Town on the campaign. So I was like, okay, so a monthly piece for the magazine, which would be like six or eight thousand words and like a weekly piece for uh, for the New Yorker. This is a kind of amazing, weird, like old media, new media combination. Like. But the question was, I said to them both, I said, look, man, I want to be what now we would call an embed, you know, but I don't want to be on one campaign. I want to be able to go anywhere I want to go on any given day. I don't want cost to be an issue. I want to be able to get on any plane and fly anywhere and not care. And that includes Air Force One, and that includes a foreign trip by Clinton to Russia or whatever. Like so, they said, "How much do you think it's going to cost?" And I said, "You know, I, I want to like I want to budget like I forget what the, I really actually forgot what the number was, but it was something like you know three hundred fifty thousand or four hundred thousand dollars for for T and E." And Lewis and and Tina had some some summit. We should tried,
1: point out at this point that it's, some people might. Know that now Wired and New York are owned by the same yes, company, but that was not true at the not time. True.
2: Not true. Kanye Nast did not yet own Wired. And so um, Tina and Lewis sat down and had some incredible kind of tête-à-tête where they tried to figure out how they were going to divide up my expenses. The details of which I do not know to this day, I would like to ask one. I mean, they probably neither one of them remember. But I remember Battelle coming to see me in D.C. after this thing and saying, it's done. Like, they're, like, going to do it. But here's the thing. Lewis has this idea that um, we're going to start this new thing on the web, Wired is going to have this thing called Hotwired, and Hotwired had actually already started to be fair. Uh-huh. It was the first site on the internet that ever ran banner ads. Yeah. Like, and it was like a progenitor of how you're going to actually pay for this incredible new thing back in 1994, 1995. And Lewis is like, I'm going to I want to start a politics channel on Hotwired and we're going to call it the Netizen and as part of this kind of great deal we've got for you, you're going to do a daily post. There was no such thing as a blog it's at that time. Yeah. That word did not exist. And Lewis said, you're going to write a couple hundred words, just like some funny thing you see, a little tidbit, so we can have a daily update from the trail with John Heilman, our new Hunter Thompson. And I was like, yeah, all right, that sounds okay. I'll do that. Sure, no problem. So I started in January of '96 doing these things. And about three weeks in, I get this call from Lewis, and he says, uh, Oh, my God, we got the best fucking news in the world. You can't believe how great this story is. What's just happened? I said, what's that? He said, well, the New York Times syndicate wants to syndicate your column for netizen to all of its newspapers in the New York Times syndicate as a column. And I was like, okay, well, that's great, but, like, this isn't really a column. He's like, well, it's a column now. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you got to write at least 800 words every day. And I said, i got to write 800 words a day? And I'm also writing an 8,000-word piece for your magazine every month, and I'm also writing a piece for Talk of the Town every week. And he's like, yeah. And I took a deep breath and said, okay, let's go. And um, that's what I did. From January of 1996 to November of 1996, five days a week. It's insane. I wrote 800 to 1,000 words a day for the web. And then I wrote, every, in every issue of the magazine, I wrote a seven to 9,000-word feature. And then I wrote a piece every week, almost every week, in Talk of the Town. And um, at the end of the year, I published like 175,000
1: words in total. It wasn't an era of just a lot of excitement, like politics and tech are coming together, and like. No. Well, that was the other thing that happened. Lewis was wrong. The 1996 election was not the year
2: of the internet. First of all, the campaign was boring. Second of all, (laughs) the web didn't really come into its own. None of the campaigns knew how to use it. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a curiosity more than it was a real factor. The first thing that really made the internet matter in politics came two years later when Drudge emerged and became the vehicle for all the Lewinsky shit. That was when the web became an actual force in actual politics. Drudge really was the person who made the web... Matter in politics, and it was all around Lewinsky. But when I look back on it, it was a great, great year for me, but I really worked harder that year than I have ever worked, than I had ever worked to that point, and that I ever will work again.
1: One more thing on this. I'm just curious from a general, in a more general sense. Like you mentioned, you said... I want uh, unlimited expenses. I want to be able to go where I want to go.
2: Yeah. I said I wanted a bureau in Washington. I wanted them to rent me office space. I wanted an assistant. I Like I said, all kinds of shit. <laughs> I'm like, I said I had like a and e budget and I said, and then I need, a, I need an office. I'm not doing this out of my house. You're going to go find me office space. I need an assistant who's
1: like dedicated to running my life with travel and doing all this stuff, all that stuff that needs to get paid for. Well, my question is basically some version of like where did that come from, that confidence come from? Because I know a lot of writers – they're like, should I ask for a dollar sixty a word instead of a dollar fifty word? You know, like, did you feel like you were in demand, and so you should ask for it, or did you just, did you, where did your like confidence in like I should get this because I can deliver? Where did that come from?
2: Well, I just knew. I mean, first of all, I had a few. I mean, there were other job offers that I had, so I didn't feel like if this didn't work out, I didn't have anywhere else to go. But I really like when I said when I sold the travel thing to Louis. I mean, I, it wasn't really about confidence. It was just like, listen. Here are the things you've now described to me you want. Now let me tell you how much that will cost. If you think that that's more than you want to spend, okay, but then we should talk about a different set of things you want from me because here's the things you want. I was really just really pricing out what Lewis's ambitions were. If I'm going to be traveling this much and I'm going to be on the road as much as you want me to be, I can't be like booking my plane tickets for myself. In a weird way, it didn't seem like chutzpah. It seemed like this is the rational, if you want X, Here's what is Let me make a list of what X will entail. And these are the things that I need to do it in a, in a reasonably effective way and not kill myself. Yeah. In a day that is now seems like a million years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, these magazines all were really profitable and all had a lot of money. And Wired was like a hot shit magazine. And every tech company in the fucking country was advertising in it. And it had won a couple of national magazine awards in a row right out of the gate. And people thought it was like this defining zeitgeisty thing. And Wired was that moment, made mm-hmm. hand, my money hand over fist, there was a lot of money
1: around. And So, so then uh, post-campaign, then were you mostly writing for Wired? So we, we met in the early 2000s, You were you had been writing more about tech business and then the Microsoft trial. Well, there's the
2: whole middle part of the story, which is like the great the great failure of my career, you know, which is that like I I came back at the end of ninety six. Tina was wanted me to come and really be full time at the New Yorker. And Adam Moss, who was then at the New York Times magazine, wanted me to write for the New York Times magazine full time. So I had to decide between those two things. One of the funniest things that ever happened to me, and again one of the great mysteries of my life, I went at the end of the year, at the end of the of the campaign, I um I decided I was going to go to Costa Rica for a month and just like totally decompress. Mm -hmm. And so again, to stay on the, on the tread, on the train of this conversation, I said to my friend, James Bennett, I said, Hey, let's go to Costa Rica for a month. And like, just like, just drop out. So like in like right after Thanksgiving, we went to Costa Rica for a month from like Thanksgiving to Christmas. And we didn't tell anybody where we were going, we just said, we're going to Costa Rica. Bye. See you later. And I had decided to put all my job possibilities on hold. I was like, I was, I'll figure this out when I get back. And um, we decided to go to this diving place up in the north of Costa Rica, right on the, right on the Nicaraguan border, Called this place called El Ocatal. And one day we got out of the water and we were coming back up the hill, and this guy came down from the office of this little crappy hotel we were staying in and said there was a phone call for me. And I, I said like that can't be possible. Like, what do you mean there's a phone call for me? I said, who's like like did the person say who it was? And the guy said there's some woman named Tina Brown is on the phone for you. And to this day, again, I do not have no idea how she knew where I was. Like, I have no idea how she found me. It makes no sense. And she was like, you must come back to New York right now. I want you to do a profile on so and so. And like, you must come back. You must come back. And I was like, I'm not coming back. I'm here for like another five days it's three days before christmas like the story can wait i'll do the story after the first of the year whatever so i came back and did this piece i loved adam and i really thought that i might go to the times magazine but in the end tina can made this case for me she said you know you should um you should quit politics and um write about business again because politics is now in a second term of an administration it's gonna be really boring yeah you're not gonna care and no one's gonna give a shit about clinton How this is all pre lewinsky you know. Oh. And nineteen ninety-seven was a really like the start of the year started. It was like, oh God, there were like congressional investigations about Al Gore and Buddhist temples and all kinds of bullshit. And I was oh, like, yeah. That's... I said, yeah. She said, you know, this technology thing's kind of interesting. You know, you might want to make a name for yourself being the person who is the translator of what's going on out there in the wired world to what's these people here who read The New Yorker. And I thought, you know, actually kind of makes some sense. That sounds all right. So I, I took that gig and I wrote this profile in July of 97 of John Doerr, famous venture capitalist behind Netscape, Amazon.com. The, she said, go do a talk piece on him. And I was like, no, this is like a feature, you know? So I ended up writing like this long feature about John that really changed both of our lives in interesting ways, made him much more famous at that point, um, and got me a book deal, which was like, go do a David Halberstam kind of book about the history of silicon valley yeah so i moved to san francisco in 1998 with the intention of spending a couple years doing like um you know the reckoning of silicon valley and i mean the the book turned out this book i never wrote yeah um, and i got deep into the weeds and i couldn't figure out how to do the book and i couldn't figure out how to write it and i had so many different threads and so much stuff and i was so oppressed by the ambition of it. And I was too young to have taken the deal. Like I, I didn't really know how to do what I needed to do. I was not, I, I did not have the narrative chops at that point to write the book that I had signed up to write huh. is it the truth. Like now I know that at the time I didn't. And I was like in crisis over the fact that
1: the first book deadline came and I missed it and I didn't have the book. I wasn't close to having the book. I remember, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I, I saw it on Amazon once. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: It's just still on Amazon, I think. Is it really?
1: <laughs> Pick up a copy. It was a book. It was going to be
2: called The Valley. Yeah. You know, it was like a million dollar advance, and like there was like a lot of pressure, and you know, and then Tina left the New Yorker, and David Ramnick came in, and was like, "I want you to start doing stuff." And I was like, "I'm like paralyzed. I can't do anything. I'm like, I was, I was the worst part of my ever in my professional life. I was just totally." completely, utterly blocked and fucked and unable to produce and, like, in this bad, 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 bad place. And were you
1: still reporting? Just, like, gathering yeah, piles and piles of I reporting? Was reporting
2: I was still good at, Yeah, but I couldn't write. It was my failure and yet it is also the case that like, there's a reason it took David Halberstam 10 years to write The Reckoning, you know, and the reason it took him 10 years to write The Powers That Be. You don't do a book like that in two years. Uh-huh. You, you don't. I don't blame the publisher, but we all had unrealistic expectations yeah, and I collapsed under the weight of them completely to the point of like being in like a state of like close to total nervous breakdown and Katrina who by then Heron, who had then become the editor of Wired took me aside one day in the offices of Wired and said, I've been listening to you talk about your reporting throughout this entire thing. And you know, the Microsoft antitrust trial is now happening and, um, seems like you have a lot of stuff on that. Like, and you're in this weird position. And I had, like, I thought somehow that Microsoft Andy Trust trial was going to be like one thread of the narrative of the whole book. Yeah. And I thought, well, that'll be like some part of the book. That's how like fucked up I was that that, I, I thought that was like a, like a part of the book. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, not like a thing unto itself. It was, so somehow that would fit in another narrative that also included Andy Grove and Steve Jobs and John Doerr and everybody in the world.
1: It was going to be like the game of Thrones. Yeah, it was, oh, I mean, so it, was so insane, it was insane. Life. It
2: was an insane thing. So she said, you know, you have a lot of stuff on this. And so I think what you need to do to 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 make yourself sane is to write something. And so you should tell HarperCollins to back the fuck off and that they'll get a book someday but like not now. And you should tell Remnick to fuck the to fuck off and tell him that like, you know, that unless he wants you to write about the Microsoft trial, which we already know he's assigned to Kenaletta, you're you're not going to write anything for him and you should come here and I'm going to call you special correspondent and you're going to take six months and you're going to write a story about the Microsoft antitrust trial for me and I said okay Katrina is like totally like not ever into wallowing in a problem mm-hmm. Katrina's like into like okay like I've now heard your problem What are the what's the solution to this problem so she had watched me wallow for a while and then she basically just like picked me up and said this is what you're doing now and once I had that direction I was like in like good shape and we blocked out Um, 12,000 word version of that story and I like wrote the first part of it and it was like 4,000 words or 5,000 words and Katrina was like I said I'm like like this isn't like this is way too much and she said keep writing and I said okay and every time I would write another section it was like that's like 7,000 words and it was like then I wrote the third section it was like 13,000 words and I was writing three, four, five thousand words a day sometimes. Like yeah, it, was just, it was
1: a really tight deadline for some it, it was already designated for well, an issue. Yeah and it, and it was, 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 yeah, and it was it was
2: yeah, and there was it was because the verdict and the trial was coming down and like we right knew right. there was a time and there there was a peg to it and it had to get done. But I was writing it like I mean like a fiend. And the longer it got, the more Katrina was like, don't do not stop. Like doesn't matter. I don't care how long it is. And so at the end, you know, of that crazed summer that you were brought into as a fact checker you know, the first draft of the piece was 65,000 words. And Katrina's like, well, we can't run it at 65,000 words. And I said, yeah, I know. And she said, but we're going to cut it. We'll cut it. And I said, okay, well, you guys cut it. I'm going to, like, we, I got to finish it, you know. And they cut it from 65,000 words down to 57,000 words. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was basically the whole magazine. It was the whole magazine.
2: Yeah. We made the magazine. There was, there was nothing else in that magazine except for the front of the book. But the whole feature well was that. I remember being at the end of it and not being able to finish like the end literally the end like the last couple paragraphs which if you go back and read them now are very the piece was done but it didn't have a kicker and I remember being I'd been up for like three days straight and Katrina called me from New York from some empty apartment she was like a friend of hers with no furniture and she was like on the floor of some apartment in New York and she called me and like talked me through like what needed to get said in the last like paragraph or two of this piece which was like a big summation like a big like Greek tragedy summation about Bill Gates yeah and I, like, finished the conversation, and I wrote the, wrote, wrote the thing down, and, um, and, I, and I put it in, and I, when I got done, I was like, I'm around, I'm happy with this. And months later, you know, or well, not months later, a month later, when the magazine came out, um, David Boyce, who was the litigator for the government in the yep. case, was in San Francisco for the Napster trial, which he was also at that point conducting on behalf of Napster,
1: He's been in, been in everything. Yes, David. Bush B- v.
2: Gore, Bushvigor. They are yeah, one of the great, tr- truly yeah. one of the great, you know, litigators of all time ever, and a great character also in the Microsoft trial story and in yeah. many other stories. Well, I drove over to the courthouse where the Napster trial was going on to give David a heart, an early bound copy of the Microsoft trial story, personally, and it was like a perfect bound copy. It was not even you know a real, the real issue was about to come. The issue was about to come out in about a week. Yeah. And I gave it to David as he got in his car to go to San Francisco airport. And David is a crazy reader. He had read the piece while getting drunk. And the people who were with him remember him standing up on the bar at SFO and reading out in like these gratuitously stentorian tones the last two paragraphs of the piece, which were like, you know, that, that ended with, like, you know, Bill Gates was mortal, you know, and he, like, got up and did this thing, and, like, people were, like, applauding at the airport at San Francisco Airport, and there was this whole thing. I mean, most of it was because it was David Boyce, right? But, like, I thought, well, it probably means that the end of the piece is a little too melodramatic, and I probably overrode it a little bit, but it's still such a fucking good story that I'm, like, going to be able to dine out on that for a while. Um, so, anyway, um, that piece came out, and I'm still really, really proud of it, you know? And, like, you know, when Wired put together their best of collection last year and and did it as an e-book thing. yeah i went back and read it again for the first time in 10 years and like i read it and was like yeah you know this kind of stands up it's like there's a lot of good reporting in here and this is a pretty sound piece of of long-form narrative reporting
1: and then it became a book did the book uh did that satisfy your publisher yeah for the silicon valley books yeah. are you off the hook yeah
2: Harper collins called up and said well why isn't this the book and I was like, well, it could be the book. And he said, they said, well, you know, 57,000 words isn't really a book. And I said, well, I can make, I already got 10 extra thousand words, you know, that we cut and there's other stuff I could put in. And so I spent like three months uh, at the end of that year, you know, building that thing up to be about 95,000 words or something. And we published it as a book in January of, of '01. Yeah, as a book called pride before the fall. You know, it was not a huge commercial success, but like it was like it did pretty well. Yeah. And and people like wrote nice reviews about it. And like it felt like it was like an okay resolution to what could have been a fucking catastrophe for my career.
1: (laughs) So then uh, then you you ended up in New York magazine. You were covering the campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And and
2: just to just like tie up the loose end, basically, like, you know. Because, as I mentioned before, Adam had tried to hire me at the New York Times Magazine. And so when I moved to New York, which was really a personal decision, I just decided I wanted to be here because most of my close friends were here. And I realized that, like, in life, that I wanted to be nearer to more people that I was really close friends with, in the exception of Katrina and John Battelle. So I moved out here in 2002. And shortly thereafter, Adam Moss became the editor of New York Magazine. And I didn't really have a gig at that point. i, mean, I was still, in theory, special correspondent for Wired. Remnick was mad at me because when he took over, he rightly, you know, he had taken over the New Yorker and I was not there for him at the beginning of his tenure. And I had, in fact, done a competitive thing against Ken. So, like, he was pissed. I wasn't going to go back to the New Yorker. And and I was like, I didn't really have a job. I wrote a couple pieces of Vanity Fair. I did this and that. But then when Adam took over at New York Magazine, it was like this moment where... Oh, you know, we've wanted to work together for a long time and I need someone, I'm remaking this magazine and I need someone to be the new political columnist here and the new like national politics guy at New York magazine in my New York magazine. Why don't you come do this? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. I've always wanted to work for Adam. He's like one of the great magazine makers of our age. Yeah. And it was a chance. It seemed like that seemed like karma, like kismet, you know, like, like, Oh yes, yes. Okay, great. You're taking over this magazine. I just moved here. Let's go. And I kind of seized control of the of that beat and and it rolled into the 2008 campaign, which turned out to be like the campaign of a lifetime.
1: Yeah, and I remember you saying at some point that the through line for a lot of this stuff, like your beat that you've been following all, all these years was the same beat and it was power.
2: Yeah. The longstanding column in New York Magazine was called The National Interest. It was the column that Joe Klein wrote and the column that Jake Weisberg wrote and the column that a lot of people had written over time. It was the national politics thing. And I said, I didn't want to do that that I would do a lot of politics, but I wanted to also be able to f- be free to range across business and other things. And so we called that column the Power Grid. and That's right. and, and it was specifically because of this. And I'll tell you, the person who – another person who was in the same world of the Washington Monthly and James Bennett and I back in the early 90s was our friend Kate Boo, who really is, you know, like is really the journalist of our generation and is like really the greatest of like the – of my age. But she was the one who said to me one day, it doesn't actually not make sense that you did media and then politics and then technology and now you're back to politics. That's all you ever write about is power. That's all you care about. And like everything you do is tied up by that. And I was like, I didn't hadn't seen it really myself, but that was right. And that was part of why we called the column the power grid. And and it does really kind of animate really most of the things I'm interested in.
1: Yeah, looking back, the, the whole range of magazine stories actually only found one which is also about power in its own way, but uh, that was very different, which was this Lawrence Lessig story that you did uh, about abuse at his high school. And that actually, it stood out that much more because it was this sort of, it was a different kind of magazine story than yeah. all these other things kind of like are taking on powerful people in one yeah. way or the other.
2: I mean, that piece was is about power.
1: Yeah. Um, the power of, uh, of someone who was a, a, a
2: choir school headmaster who abused his power to... Um, sexually abuse, serially sexually abuse, a lot of young choir students, including Larry Lessig. Um, and I wrote the piece because Larry was what I mean I, I was upfront about this in the piece, you know Larry was someone I was friends with and am still friends with. Um, and Larry told me that story
1: and he was waging a lawsuit. right He was the lawyer. they they brought him in as the lawyer as the in addition lawyer. to being a victim.
2: Yes, and so it was a weird thing. like I'd covered obviously some lawsuits, right? A, a, a court case in which the litigator is, first of all, a super famous national figure and also is litigating in some sense on behalf of himself because, in fact, he's litigating for all these abused children of whom he was one, though he had never admitted that to anybody before. That story, when Larry told it to me over a Kitchen Table like that he was doing this case. I just like literally I was in San Francisco and said, what are you doing next? He's like, I'm doing this weird case that's involves this choir school. And I was like, well, why are you doing that case? Cause that has nothing to do with creative commons or any of the stuff you've ever done before. And he basically had to say to me, well, the reason I'm doing it is because I was a victim and I think not in an opportunistic, horrible way. I just sort of was like, well, you know, that's an incredible story. And if you ever wanted to tell it, mm-hmm. I would be happy to write it. And, Larry thought about it for a while and then came back and said, yes, I would like to tell it because there were a lot of deep issues he had not told his parents, for instance. In fact, the article was his way of telling his parents that he had been abused. And so there was he was working through some deep shit of his own, but he made this very independent decision to decide that that I was the right writer to do it and that he wanted it done. It's written also in the most plain language of any story I've ever written. There's almost no adjectives or adverbs in it. It's just like very like it's this super, super, super stripped down like version of the story because like the story itself is so powerful that like all the editorial choices and Adam and I really talked about it all the time. We were like just bare bones of the story, like tell it in these very simple direct sentences like declarative sentences really simple tell the story just let the story tell itself let it speak for itself let the voices speak for themselves and don't you don't have to tell anybody anything more than that because the story itself is so rich and so complicated and so powerful that you don't have to embroider it with anything yeah
1: it's definitely different from like the style of you know almost anything like game else game changer yeah okay i gotta ask you how these books um these books are obviously like both huge sensations like one movie's been made. Presumably, like a second one may be made out of it. So, I have some like general things that I wonder about the process of doing these. One of which is how does a dual byline situation work? Like I remember I've watched you write before when I was like fact-checking and it was like this the most intense <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Of like writing a sentence and then deleting the whole sentence with the like backspace key and being like no 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 and like do, doing it again and it's sort of hard for me to imagine like how does this process work with you and another writer doing entire books?
2: Well, it's like you know we 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 recognize that there's a need for the book to have uh, for these books to have like us you can't like separate the chapters you can't sort of say well you're going to do the even number chapters and I'm going to do the odd number chapters right the starting point is. That there's like all these interviews and there's hundreds of them and they're all long interviews. And so there's like thousands of pages, tens of thousands of pages of transcripts that need to be read. And if you're going to decide that you're going to write a book where you take the omniscient voice and you're going to write, this is what happened in this room. And these are what people said to each other. This is what they're thinking. This is what they're thinking. And you're not going to say, according to one source, this happened. According to another source, that happened. You really like have to be. You're basically saying, well, my reputation's on the line here, whether this is true or not. And so you have to report the living shit out of it and get to the point where you're really super confident that what you're putting on the page is right. And the distillation of tens of thousands of pages of transcripts where you've asked people the same questions over and over and over again and asked about a certain meeting 20 different ways with 30 different people or 12 different people is an incredibly like, you know, mind numbing experience. But when you get all of that material distilled down, we have outlines of these chapters because the books are written in this very kind of like almost screenplayish way. Like, you know, we move from big scene to big scene. Uh-huh. There's not a lot of exposition. There's not a lot of analytics. It's like it's about like trying to like be big and cinematic and this moving from this big meeting to this big speech to this big thing to this big that. You know, there are like big set pieces mm-hmm. that around which the thing moves. If you write a de- detailed enough outline... It's like the chapter's kind of written already. Uh So someone then needs to write the first draft of it. And sometimes I do that and sometimes Mark does that. Hmm. But then, you know, we pass it back and forth. But the reporting is the key to it, you know, in some level. Because there's a lot of dialogue in the books and there's a lot of paraphrase in the books. There's a lot of like, you know, like, we want you to be in the room and feel like you're in the room. It's almost almost entirely that. And it would be impossible, I think, to do If it was like, we're doing analysis and and none of this is a, is a diss on analysis or like, you know, books that do analysis, but that's not what these books are. It's not what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to like basically tell this human story of like, these are the, these incredibly insanely vain, narcissistic, brilliant, idealistic, all of the above people in the greatest competition in American life to try to, like, win the ultimate prize of power, you know, to win the White House. And what's it like for them to go through that process, which is an insane process, right? Like this combination flash incinerator, meat grinder, a thing that we put our political leaders through to become president. And one of the things that's most frustrating when people criticize the books is, like, they criticize the books for not having certain things in them. And it's like, it's it's not like we forgot. Uh It's not like we left those things out like, by accident, because we're too dumb. Like it's an like, analysis
1: of healthcare, health right, like, healthcare plans we, or something. We,
2: that's not the book we're writing. Uh-huh. Now, you might decide that this kind of book is useless and you shouldn't read it. Okay, that's fine with me. I mean, like, I can live with that. But, like, I'm a big believer in, like, plurality and, and, and democracy. Like, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom and let a thousand different kinds of journalism bloom about campaigns. And... Let people, you know, pick among pick and choose of the, the kind of story they want to read about it. And so, I'm really interested in demography and in policy and in analysis and in all kinds of stuff. And I read all those books, and I think they're fascinating.
1: Yeah. How do you decide about scoops? I mean, both these books came out that when the book came out with a splash, even months after the election, because they had pretty big scoops in the first case, like the John Edwards stuff, yeah. detail, and the second one, the Hillary Clinton for for Biden's switch. Switch. Are you with your like New York Magazine stuff? Do you not have to put all the scoops into the stuff you're writing during the campaign? Can you hold stuff back? Or how do you decide that?
2: Well, the first thing we do is we say, to to the extent, like there's a bunch of interviews that get done, right? Some of them get done during the campaign. Some of them get done after the campaign. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of the interviews that we do take place after the election is over. Uh, So like really from, like we did interviews on the last book on Double Down, we started doing interviews in the summer of 2010. We need you to sit down with us for three or four hours and really talk about shit, number one. And most people have that kind of time. Mm-hmm. So getting the kind of opportunity is hard in the middle of a campaign. Secondly, we say to people in a very distinct way, this is an interview for a book. This is embargoed for after election day. You know, with Adam, I would say, I'm doing two different kinds of interviews When I'm working on a magazine piece. It's a magazine piece. And I'm telling people, this is a magazine piece and this will go in the magazine next week. Or it would be Mark and I saying, you know, this is for a book that's going to come out after election day. And anything you say here, we will not report until after election day. That is, that is the embargo. We have no incentive to screw you because as soon as we screw you, all of your colleagues are going to know that we screwed you and, you know, you'll, nobody will ever talk to us again. So you have two categories of interview. Even if you make that promise to people, and even if they believe you, the truth is that human nature is that no one really, really is free to be totally open about what's going on until after Election Day. Yeah. So though you, we do a bunch of interviews, it, we did in Double Down a bunch of interviews in 2010, some in 2011, some in the summer of 2012, I would say that of the valuable material that appears in Double Down, that 90% of it – was stuff that we got after election day. Uh-huh. There's this period of about six months where we're doing seven days a week from eight o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning till like midnight, like three or four or five, two or three or four hour long interviews a day, just people stacked up. And that period is when almost everything that you would think that the world thinks is quote a scoop comes from, comes from the, yeah. that period from November till April.
1: So when, when, when you did Game Change, was there a feeling that like it was gonna be a sensation because that campaign was so so intense and there was so much to it? Or was it just like, let's do a campaign book and there'll be 200 campaign books that'll come out that year?
2: When we, we didn't decide to do it until April or May of 2012. Uh-huh. And at that point, the publishing industry had decided that campaign books were commercially losing propositions part of it was driven by what had happened with Richard Ben Kramer's book where what it takes which is one of the you know the magisterial books of campaign coverage ever richard had taken you know 6 years to write it and it was like the length of tolstoy and it's a brilliant book and a brilliant writer who did a brilliant job and sold like you know hundreds of copies yeah. like i mean now it's... in its afterlife it has sold some more but it still was a vast commercial failure Uh-huh. And so the days when Hunter Thompson had had hits with fear and loathing on the campaign trail were a long time ago. And the publishing business had basically decided that um, campaign books wouldn't sell. And then the Internet made them think it even more so because their attitude was there's so much coverage out there. There can't be anything interesting that isn't already out there. Like, what could you possibly tell us about the campaign that we don't already know, given the amount of coverage there is? And Mark and I, when we first thought about doing game change, we looked at that presupposition and we're like, no, 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 that's wrong. First of all, it's wrong because the nature of coverage now is like little kids at a soccer game. It's like the ball gets kicked down one end of the field and everybody chases the ball and then it gets kicked down to the other end and they chase the ball. But you obsess over a certain question, like how did Sarah Palin get on the ticket? Everyone obsesses about that for three days. But the ball then gets kicked down to the other end of the field, and the pack races after the ball, and the question remains mm-hmm. unanswered. So in, like, the spring of 2008, we sat there and said, well, do you, like, really know how Barack Obama decided to run, like, like, like that he could really beat Hillary Clinton? And we were both were like, I don't really know the answer to that question. And we both have been covering the Clintons for a long time, and we both said, like, do you really know what the role of Bill Clinton has been in his wife's campaign? And we were like, no, I, I really don't know. I mean, I don't. I've, I know a few things about this and that, but I don't really know that. Well, those are pretty big questions. Yeah. Like, and there's a lot of coverage, and still, we don't know the answer to those questions. And the Palin thing came up three months later, but again, it was the same kind of thing. Huge, big question. Everyone's curious. We cover. We follow this as closely as anyone, and we don't know the answer. So that tells you something about the fact that there are still big questions left to answer and it tells you that the nature of coverage though the coverage is intense and minute by minute and overwhelming it's still somehow the nature of the coverage is not focusing on and getting at some of those things. So when we went to sell the book we said there were no other books. Like we didn't like we knew huh. we it was amazing. It was April of 2008. The Obama Clinton race had been like the greatest thing we'd ever seen and no one but like Dan Balls who's a great guy and a great reporter but Dan was like doing this book but no one else was doing a book. And we went around to a bunch of publishers and said you know, guys, first of all, this campaign is actually really special. And second of all, we have a theory. Our proposal was we wrote out like four or five scenes based on what we knew at that point about some of these characters, like a Hillary scene, a Brock scene, an Edward scene, a McCain scene. And we said, this is kind of what the book will look like. And HarperCollins and a number of other publishers were like, well, that might sell. But to answer your original question, we, we thought we had a lot of things in the book that were interesting and we thought they were news. And the truth is that to sell hundreds of thousands of books, you need to have, I think, I think, you need for the book to be good. And the second thing is you have to get lucky and 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 like you have to have like a kind of lightning strike quality. You have to have news that can be promoted and sold on television and get people to pay attention and stuff. The thing that we did not think was news in the book was this thing about Harry Reid saying that Barack Obama had no Negro deal- dialect except when he wanted to have one. We didn't think it was news. We didn't promote it as news in the pre-publicity. It was never in any material. And I, again, one of my the most vivid memories I will ever have in my life was sitting at Momofuku Noodle Bar on Saturday afternoon with my wife and looking down at my phone and seeing that some guy, uh, Mark Ambinder, this blogger, uh-huh. Had gotten a book that the uh, had found a book in a bookstore in Washington. The embargo had broken a couple uh-huh. days early, and we had set up the sixty minutes was going to be the big break, which was Palin and Steve Schmidt yeah. on Sunday night, and that yeah. was going to be the big break for the book. And the book was embargoed. Mark Amander had picked up this book at Kramer Books in Washington D.C., and he seized on the Harry Reid thing, and had called Reid's office and said like What's the deal?" And Reid had apo- like immediately like came out and admitted that he said it and apologized, and. I was sitting there looking at this going, oh, my God, like the Senate majority leader just apologized for this thing that we didn't like really think was news. And then by two o'clock in the afternoon, the president issued a statement saying, I accept Harry Reid's apology. And at that point, we knew like, OK, this thing's like out of control. Yeah. And, and it was now on the front page of the Sunday New York Times. All of a sudden, it was this runaway train and we hadn't even gotten a 60 minutes yet. But then the next night. You had Sarah Palin on 60 Minutes, which is the biggest news-selling, the biggest book-selling television venue in America. And the combination, that one-two punch, which really was like one thing we totally planned Mm -hmm. and one thing we totally didn't plan. But those two things together created this firestorm where, you know, we sold, you know, like 100,000 books in a day. On Monday, that is insane. You know, yeah. I mean, it was like we stood in this Barnes and Noble, and I can't tell you like the weird again. Another one of these memories I'll never forget. Standing in the Barnes and Noble at like in like Columbus Circle, and they were bringing in stacks of the book, like that were like fifty high, and we stood there and watched the stacks like go down. Like like we stood there for twenty minutes, and like people like fifty would get bought in the in ten minutes, and then like more people would come in and buy more. And we stood so there just looking at it going, like, this is the most incredible, fucked-up, weird thing I've ever had in my, in my life. There's like, you couldn't – like, so this is my long did, way of answering your question. Did you expect it to be like that? No, I did not expect it to be like that. And it was weird
1: and, like, oh, man, this is crazy. <laughs> um, a, a part of all this is that you started appearing on TV. You yeah. now are on MSNBC all the time, and then you've got this new gig at Bloomberg, so yeah. we'll be on TV a lot there. Yeah. And I'm curious, like – When that started happening, obviously that's a good uh, thing for like getting your writing out into the world. And, you know, I mean, you're like a reporter's reporter. I think people who see you on TV don't necessarily know that. There's a guy just so pines about politics the way that uh, anyone on TV does. But did you did you have a fear like this is going to cause me to not be taken as seriously being a kind of talking head on TV? I didn't have that fear at
2: all. I discovered very early you know, I mean, as early, I mean, much earlier than this. I remember, you know, the first few times everyone on television back in the mid '90s. But you know, like going on Charlie Rose to sell the Microsoft story. Mm-hmm. You know, when when we published, that sold the story. Like yeah. it was part of the thing. Is like, and if you're a writer, like a, and you're not like an asshole, in my opinion, you want the maximum number of people to read your stuff. And it's there's nothing wrong with that. That's like that's what this is. You know, there's no great glory in cultivating some weird niche audience, right? Yeah. You know. I do this work because I believe in what I'm doing and I want I, I don't want to I'm not trying to compromise my principles or my or my standards to get a larger audience. But once I have written the thing of which I feel confident and proud and feel as though is ethically and journalistically sound, I then want the maximum number of people to read it. My job is partly to go out and sell that story so that somebody will go and buy that magazine mm-hmm. to like keep that magazine at some level close to profitability. So it'll continue to be able to subsidize the work of great, you know, restaurant critics and film critics and reporters like me. That's, you know, that's how you sell magazines, right? So it's not just selling your own work. It's also supporting the institution that supports you. Right. You know, the weird thing is, you know, there's like this whole, whole bunch of people who watch, the, who watch cable TV who, like, frankly, like, just don't read, you <laughs> know. Or I don't know what they read, but, like, you know, people I get who stop me on the street – You know, who, like, think I'm the TV guy. Yeah. And you're like, oh, Morning Joe guy, you know, hardball guy, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell guy. You're that guy. You're the TV guy. Chris Matthews show. I know you. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then there's people who come up to me, like, you know, at a restaurant and say, like, you know, I love your column in New York Magazine. I read it every week. And, like, I love the books and I read the books and whatever. And they don't say anything about the TV. You know, I didn't really start out understanding that I sort of assumed that like somehow there would be some
1: crossover. So you now you're, you're moving on to do this thing at Bloomberg. I feel like we don't need to talk about it in depth because you haven't even started it yet, but at some point later in the future, we'll have you back to talk about what it is. As long as there's more bullet rye. Well, there's always, there's always another bottle of bullet rye
2: in the (laughs) Adamus studios. I'll be, I'll be back, you know, next week.
1: But I have two, two part question, which is maybe connected. So both of the books have been uh, very successful does that set you up? I mean, do you feel like a pressure, like the next thing has to be bigger? And then the other part of it is, do you get tired of politics? I mean, is there a point at which you say like, I don't want to do another fucking campaign. Like I, I've i seen it all. Like there, nothing could happen in this campaign that could possibly be uh, new to me. Or is it all, does it feel new when it comes around again?
2: Well, uh, the second question, I'll answer the question as not yet, you know? I can imagine a day when I when I say, you know, i think i want to sit this one out and i want to go write about something else i mean i can imagine that i've done it you know because i've switched back and forth between politics and business and maybe i'll go write about sports or go write about music or go write about you know food or something else um at some point i can easily imagine a day when i'm like i kind of like feel like i've done the politics thing like mm-hmm. I, I can't i mean it's totally possible that that after this cycle that i'll say that it's also possible that i won't i don't know But at this moment, I'm not tired of politics. And so um, and this campaign seems like it's going to be a pretty exciting one. So we're psyched about doing it. Um, I think that the it's not pressure to do something bigger or or anything. It's just more that, like, you know, we may or may not do a third book, but it was more for me, at least, to do this thing at Bloomberg, which is this this kind of ambitious multi-platform thing of starting a. A politics news vertical operation across platforms within an existing media company that has a lot of resources. So you can spend money to do quality stuff, which is rare in our business at this point. You know, sort of like,
1: going back to the Louis Rosetto wired yeah. thing. Like what, right. what kind of money does it take to do, do this? It takes right? money
2: takes money takes money to make good stuff. And so like there's money at Bloomberg. That's just a fact. And, they, and the, the terminal business, you know, subsidizes that, you know, creates a business that throws off billions of dollars a year in, in free cash flow. And some of that gets diverted into this news operation that they have built over there. And so we get to take a little bit of that money and make a new thing. And so that's enticing. As someone at the Atavist might appreciate, like, the notion of doing a startup is, is kind of, like, appealing. I've, sure. never d- I've never done that. So even though it's not a pure startup in the sense that it's not, like, a venture-driven startup, it's still a startup in the sense that, like, we are – we have an idea. We're going to hire a bunch of people and we're going to execute that idea. And you could consider Mike Bloomberg, our venture capitalist, you know, who's funding us, but that's, it has a startup flavor and feel to it. I had never done that before. That was appealing. Um, The cross-platform thing of like doing a TV show and doing a website and doing a website that had a lot of digital video on it. And then having events attached to that, that also was really appealing because there's not that many places you can really do it. I don't really know there's anywhere you can do it. You know, it's like the idea of doing something that has that capacity
1: is unique. Really, your answer to the question is you are doing something bigger.
2: Yes. I mean, but who knows? It could be a total failure. I mean, I, you know, it, but it's not, it wasn't a pressure like we need to now top ourselves. Right. That's not why we did it. It was more like I felt like after having done personally that after having been at New York Magazine for now almost nine years, I was like ready to try something different. And so... A place where I can still write is great, um, but the idea of being, of able to the the startup quality of this, which is different from what I was doing before, and not just being a magazine writer who appears on TV, having an ownership of the thing and a creative role in in deciding what the editorial voice of the thing would be, and then helping to execute that, I feel like I've done I've done two full presidential cycles in New York Magazine. Like I'm ready to like you know like go on and like try something a little different.
1: All right. Cool. Right. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, thanks for coming into this little podcast.
2: Yeah, the podcast, it's not TV. To, it's not TV, but it's uh, but it's it's great, and they don't always give me bullet rye when I uh, when I go. To, not always. Sometimes at, at MSNBC, they have a bottle for me, but not always. Maybe at the Bloomberg Studios. We'll, this is what we'll have as our uh, as our morning jolt. Very. I, re- I recommend it.
1: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to John Heileman for coming on this week. Thanks to my co-host, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Long Form. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. As always, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, uh, is the one that makes this happen. And also our intern, Tim Maddox. Thanks to our sponsor, Tiny Letter. And we will catch you next week.